Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi 1550 AM. This is your show host, RJ Sonia. And with me today, joining us all the way from Singapore, we have Marcus. I'm going to go to Marcus to let him introduce himself. But before that, remember, you're listening to another episode of The Silicon Dreams. And today we are going to talk about the past, present and future of the cryptocurrency industry and what all has it led to. So let's go to Marcus, who is the head of research and strategy at Metric Sport. And we are so thrilled, Marcus, to have you with us here in the studio today. I know it is morning in Singapore. So thank you for joining us. How are you doing, Marcus? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me, Sonia. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Besides the fact that you are the head of research and strategy, and folks, if you haven't read Marcus' LinkedIn notes or if you haven't subscribed to his newsletter, go and look him up. And I'm going to ask Marcus to share more information because these newsletters, the posts he shares, they are such amazing nuggets of information, especially when it comes to covering the crypto industry. I feel like everybody has to take a look at them. And I personally follow Marcus's newsletter every single week. So it's uh, the newsletter is not a paid newsletter. It's a free newsletter. So this is definitely not a shill for his newsletter. I'm not trying to sell his newsletter here. It's a free resource, but it's a resource that if you're taking even 30 minutes to glance through it, you will really get a very well-analyzed update, not just something that's very superficial, but something that has great insights. Now, um, I think I've done enough praise for Marcus. Let's just go to Marcus and ask him to introduce himself. Marcus, would you introduce yourself to the fabulous ad audiences listening to the Silicon Dreams? Yeah, thanks so much for the for the praise. I didn't actually expect this, you know. Um, so I'm the head of research at a company called Matrixport. Uh, we have around four billion US dollars uh, worth of crypto on our our balance sheet that we manage for clients, um, and we are like an institutional investment management platform basically. So I'm the head of research, so I come up with ideas, market analysis, how should people invest, how can they make more with their crypto, and that's really our slogan: How can you make more with your crypto? And it can include everything from you know from very simple: Is it time to buy Bitcoin now? Is it time to take profit? or to have like more complicated uh, strategies of like call overwriting or even some other DeFi strategies. You know, we look at everything like this. Uh, we, we publish, of course, research to institutional clients. Um, but of course, some of the research we, we unlock, we make it free for, for everybody because we really want to help uh, educate everybody in this space. And, you know, as Sonia was saying, um, actively on LinkedIn, you know, wrote a book and so on and published really uh, research every every week, basically. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, so first of all, folks, like Marcus was saying, right, he works at a company where he is the head of research and strategy, and they have over $4 billion in assets under management. And he primarily is responsible for researching how the markets are doing. So they are able to keep growing mm -hmm. those $4 billion, right? <laughs> so you can trust Marcus's analysis. Obviously, you know, no analyst can claim to be perfectly perfect. But at the same time, it is always nice to follow along a couple of good analysts. So you have, 
even if you're not trading, you have a good understanding of how the market is performing. And Marcus doesn't just work on the decentralized aspect of things. He is very knowledgeable in the area. As he said, he has also written a book and we'll talk about the book too. But at the same time, his views are on you know, coming from both sides because he has a fantastic understanding of the centralized finance world as well. A lot of you listening in might not know what centralized finance is, but centralized finance is finance as you normally know it. The banks that you deal with, the currency systems that you deal with, the fiat currencies, the sovereign currencies created by the governments, US dollars, Indian rupees, European pounds, all of these are part of the centralized finance system. And we call it centralized because it's all managed by a few centralized entities. Whereas in decentralized finance, no single entity owns all of it. So we'll talk about some of those differences also later on. But uh, Marcus, right, before Metricsport, you used to have your own hedge fund. Is that right? Yes, I used to run my own hedge fund. I also worked for other large hedge funds like you know, Millennium spent almost uh, a decade at JP Morgan's proprietary trading desk. So my background is really more more trading, coming up, you know, with ideas and really managing money. And I think, you know, bring the same kind of framework to crypto. And I think, as, as you said, you know, not everybody is 100% correct. But what we were trying to find, you know, finding the odds, when are the odds in our favor? We're looking at a lot of stats that are quite interesting. You know, for example, we're coming into, into July now. Um, and of course, July, the last time, uh, for example, like the NASDAQ went down in July was, I think, 2007. So July is usually like a very positive month for tech stocks uh, in the US, but it's also a very positive month for, for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin tends to rally by 11%. And the last, I think the last eight out of the last 11 years, Bitcoin actually has been up in July. So we look at some of those stats, you know, what does it mean for the year? When is a good time to, to buy? And sometimes there is a good seasonality impact that we just kind of highlight those stats to, to people. That's amazing, right? Like guys, just from those couple of nuggets that Marcus dropped, you probably see how how well he, or how seriously he takes his research, right? Because he is not just looking at the data in the presence. Obviously, when it comes to finance and trading, a lot of movement is cyclical. And then also you have to look at a lot of the data and charts and patterns from the past in order to predict. This is true for any sort of predictive modeling, right? You have to have data sets that you can look at, that you can make sense of. So you can leverage that knowledge to predict what could happen just based on the movements you see. So it's going to be a fun conversation and people are always thinking about, hey, what do we do with our money? So, you know, you're going to talk a little bit about money, money. here. So Marcus, let me ask you this. Obviously, you your entire career has centered around trading, right? But you used to trade a lot of just traditional dollars in a way. You worked with hedge funds, you worked with JC Morgan Chase, uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, you worked with all of these institutions. How did your journey into crypto really start? When did it begin? How did it begin? And what made you go heads over heel in the entire decentralized economy? Yeah, it's always an interesting uh, point to ask people, you know, when was the first time they have heard about it? And a lot of people remember um, you know, remember those those facts. And I think my my journey so far started uh, in January 2013 
when the person next to me started to buy Bitcoin on, on Mt. Gox and we looked at it and, you know, it took like a week to get a confirmation and you had to buy, you know, via credit card and, you know, it wasn't really that that clear. And I think, you know, because I've been in, for example, in Hong Kong living also for a long time and crypto has been around there also, you know, the, during the whole time, uh, you know, at one point in 2015, when I when I launched my, my hedge fund, I had an analyst who was trying to set up some actually exchange arbitrage for, for crypto. So trying to take advantage of higher prices on one exchange and buying uh, on, on the other where the prices are cheaper, but he couldn't get this going. And of course, my main focus was, you know, to, to run the, the macro hedge fund. But that was kind of the first time we tried to really go in and make it like a little institutional trading business around it. And then, of course, when I launched my hedge fund, uh, you know, at one point, uh, at a later point, uh, we had like 10% of our assets in crypto. So that was kind of like what we could do. Um, and then at a later point, again, I wanted to uh, to be like a full-time in crypto. And I joined a company called IDEG. There's kind of like a crypto conglomerate, um, mainly based in Asia. So there's sort of like like the galaxy, uh, you know, Mike Novogratz's galaxy of, of Asia. So they have a lot of mining. They have a lot of VC. And then, of course, they have uh, 14 crypto funds. And I joined there as a chief investment officer, you know, and then I joined really, um, you know, last year, this company called the Matrix Port that was started by, by a guy called Jihan Wu, and he controlled at one point 80% of the Bitcoin mining machine market. So he has been, of course, one of the big OGs in this space. And it's just interesting to, to work with, with those kind of people that have really been all in really from the beginning of the, of the industry and really have been, you know, instrumental in, in driving the industry tree up. So that's amazing you know obviously 2013 uh congrats on completing a full decade in the decentralized industry <laughs> guys just for your information bitcoin itself was launched in 2009 and 2008 is when the white paper for bitcoin had come out and uh the founder of the the writer the creator of the white paper the creator of bitcoin is actually a pseudonymous entity so we don't know whether it is a he or a she or a group of people nobody knows who this person is, and they are no longer active. Satoshi Nakamoto is the person who actually wrote the white paper. Person or a group of persons, I'm just going to say, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is actually the entity which launched Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was launched back in 2009. And then 2012-2013 is when it really started gaining popularity. A lot of people were talking about it. And as you mentioned, Marcus, right, you saw your friend or your colleague trying to buy Bitcoin on Mount Gox. How was the experience, by the way? Because Mount Gox was one of the first big crypto damages we have seen, right? And I believe some of the victims of Mount Gox are probably going to start getting their money, some portion of their money back this year. But literally, like, you know, 10 years later, if I'm not wrong, Mount Gox went down just around the same time, right? I I don't remember whether it was 2013 or 2015. But uh, I will let you, you're the expert here, right? I will let you uh, do the talking. Like, how was, what was your sentiment, right, around the whole Mount Gox thing? Did you actually lose any money of, or anyone you knew lost money in Mount Gox? And I know even though there is a recovery process going on. People are not going to get everything back. So I'm just going to still call it a loss. 
But uh, a lot of people who are even listening to it, I feel like a lot of our audiences would have heard about FTX because Sam Bankman-Fried was in news all over just a few months back. And again, for all the wrong reasons. But uh, Mount Cox was an even bigger disaster, but at a time when not the entire world was following crypto. So why don't you go ahead and just, you know, share your thoughts on that? Because obviously you're also an analyst. So what do you think? Like, you know, with the whole Mount Gox fiasco, uh, at that point, did you think that Bitcoin would be able to recover from it? What were your thoughts? And then since then, how have you seen cycles like this, right? Where something damaging, a big event could happen to crypto, it cools down, it recovers. Maybe you can talk about those things. Yeah, I mean the Mt. Gox case is really, you know, quite quite interesting because a lot of crypto has been lost, and apparently the exchange has been skimmed off of coins for for two, if not three years, so gradually, and they didn't really notice this. And again, there was also an, an accounting issue, so uh, they were managing Mt. Gox just with like thirty people, and they were controlling literally like seventy percent of all the trading volume. So again, we have like an an exchange, a centralized exchange that uh, that controlled really the market with like 70% of, of all the volume. And I think it's really important to repeat this because over time we have seen when a few exchanges control really the market, they don't really last because something is always happening, something always goes wrong, be it the hack, be it some, some other misappropriation of, of coins and tokens. But, you know, it's almost like 10 years now. And of course, it's a, it's a Japanese court, so maybe things take a little bit longer and uh, things were a little bit more complicated. But we are already hearing since like last year that apparently this year people should get their coins back. And first it was called, you know, was supposed to be in January, then March, then, then June, and then September now. So this is like being pushed out a little bit. And while of course a lot of people are upset that lost uh, tokens, um, but you know, Bitcoin traded at like $500 back then. So, you know, a lot of people that are getting some money back might actually be handsomely rewarded, even they will not get all their money back. But I think the other, you know, I mean, you made the comparison with FTX. I mean, Mt. Gox didn't have so many, I guess, lawyers involved that are trying to reclaim reclaim the funds, right? And we already heard that that the lawyers are probably going to spend like a billion dollars or going to get, you know, they're going to bill the, the, the creditors of the FTX exchange, probably like a billion dollars if you extrapolate the money that they have been collected already uh, so far in, into year end. So... Um, so, of course, a lot of money is going to the lawyers, you know, the U.S. court system. So it's a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, I think the Mt. Gox uh, case was really interesting because uh, it was also, you know, another company was was involved in the U.S. that was trying to set up, you know, a fast amount Gox to channel money faster into Bitcoin. And it was really like a time when, when a lot of uh, things were really kind of like moving together. And this is in 2013. I think a lot of stuff happened during that year. Yes, you know, it was definitely one of the more bullish uh, times for, we have gone through the bull and bear cycles, right, for the crypto industry. And I think 2013 was really that bullish time when a lot of things were being built, uh, a lot of foundations were being laid. And it was uh, important because, as you mentioned, even with Mt. Gox, it would take like a week for payments to get settled. And I don't know how people would do it because a lot of the times people would literally put all of their money and then, you know, you just had to wait for a month to make sure that you get that money in Bitcoin back, right, into your wallet. I know a friend of mine here who had literally taken all of his life's worth and 
a day before Mount Cox went down. That is when he had all of his funds ready. And the next day, he was going to go and put uh, all the money, his entire net worth, which at that time was $100,000. Now, you know, his net worth is much more right now. But at that time, it was still like, you know, all his cash and savings and everything he had, that was $100,000. And he was so bullish on crypto, he was ready to put all of that in Bitcoin. And Mount Gox was the only way to really get it done. He was going to talk to a broker the next day. And, you know, it's just like a day before that, that the entire Mount Gox came down stumbling. So he was just saved by a single day, to be honest, or else he would have put all of his money. And then when you take all of his savings, and that's why we say that, you know, obviously don't put all your eggs into the same basket. Uh, but people are enterprising. They want to take risks, right? Sometimes people are so bullish and something, they'll go and put all of their money on it. So, so you know, just those things uh, could happen. Um, but anyway, I'm well, just glad. <laughs> But you could also argue, right, if he would have put the money in, right, and if, and maybe half the money would have been lost, maybe that would have been fine, right, because he would have not been able to sell the $50,000 he had still in Bitcoin. And again, Bitcoin prices, you know, were like $500 at, at the time when, when the Gox exchange went under, I think. So maybe he would be, you know, had like several million now, right? So I think you can argue like two ways. It's really like the difference, you know, how do you lose the money, right? Do you lose the money? because the exchange goes bust or do you lose the money because you know there's a misappropriation of 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 coins and and everything but i think the the, the other interesting aspect is initially when people wanted to buy on Mt. Gox, they needed to send money into the personal bank account of the ceo because they didn't have a company bank account i mean this is also like crazy to like imagine if you would just send money to you know to somebody i don't know like in in japan right into his it's personal a big bank account trust and, issue right yeah. i mean you know, it's i mean bitcoin yeah. All DeFi is supposed to be a trustless ecosystem. But here, yeah. when you're sending the money to a single person, it's a lot of trust that you have to have in that person that, you know, this person will change your money and give you back your money because there were no regulations. Today, I feel like Japan has one of the best regulations, right, in the crypto industry. At least they are regulated. They can make sense of things. Like with the whole FTX fiasco, if I'm not wrong, Japan is the only place where all the investors are getting all of their money back. Right, even with the downfall of FTX. Um, but yes, I'm sorry, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, he actually is, he has bought Bitcoin at $200 and stuff too, but that's one of the things, right? A lot of the times people are like, oh, you know, if you bought Bitcoin at 200 only if they're riding it hard all this time, they would be sitting on like, you know, Bitcoin at $30,000. But a lot of people I know, they are obviously traders gotten at 200 sold at a thousand for a lot of people even 5x 10x was still a pretty big deal right like you know bitcoin going all the way up there most for a lot of the people these were this was money that they were like oh yeah you know my friend spoke about bitcoin why not just throw in five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars and now suddenly those five to ten thousand dollars have become like the biggest investment of their life you know biggest part of their portfolio um Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, though, Marcus. But, uh, you know, I would love to ask you about the cycle. So in your book, in Crypto Titans, you talk about the four cycles, the four bull and bear runs we have seen in the crypto industry. 
And I would like to ask you, where does that really, which time era does it really start from? Because many folks don't necessarily talk about the entire history about Bitcoin and the entire history of this industry dating back to 2009. You know, most of the activity started around 2011, 12, 13. 13 is also when you came in. So I would love for you to just talk about those four cycles, in fact, right? And uh, just talk about it, like what were the indicators, what happened in each of those four cycles? Uh, would love to hear from you. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, you know, by his, but to, my, to a lot of people, history sounds always like a little bit boring, but I think history is actually very important. And I think yeah. with the understanding of, of history, uh, I think you can actually make a lot of better decisions and really understand this whole industry, where it came from and where it's going. And I think, for example, this is why why I wrote this book because this book you can read it over the weekend, and I think you, you know, you're gonna agree that you have learned like you know a hundred times uh, more than than you knew before, no matter how much experience you have. And so when I look at the really like the the, the history of, of of Bitcoin, and there were four distinct bull markets. So there was one in 2011, driven by Bitcoin as a new form of payment. There was another one driven in 2011. And it was really driven by China as a way to kind of like transfer also money and get like another investment uh, opportunity. Uh, and it was uh, suddenly used also by some Chinese companies as a as a payment mechanism for online goods. Uh, and then we had, of course, the 2017 bull market, which was, you know, set around the ICO, raising capital for a lot of the projects. So it was an alternative way to raise capital. And then 2021, which was more kind of like the DeFi uh, DeFi summer, yield farming, uh, bull market. And these bull markets were all different. They all had, for example, uh, different players, different exchanges uh, were really leading leading this, this, this task. Um, but it's also, there was usually like some invention that really changed like the dynamics a little bit. And this is why I would also argue that, um, you know, looking at, at the history, or let's say over the last uh, two bull markets, the, the, the coins and tokens that did really well might actually not come back as, as we have seen before. So the only constant I start to realize is actually that Bitcoin has made a new high, but some of the tokens, for example, of the 2017 bull market have not made new highs in 2021. So, of course, if you're like a, a project or a protocol that raised really late in the 2017 bull market, I think then you had a fair chance because you haven't really deployed a lot of the capital. But if you have like started 2016 and your token was like trading already then, and of course, uh, then you had like a, a relatively low chance to really participate in the 2021 bull market. So this is why I think it's very important to stay on top to you know of the market to understand which projects are really driving the the bull market, and it's really like being informed. And I think this is really the key difference between some retail investors with institutional investors, because institutional investors, you spend like all day really looking looking at these things and analyzing things. And I think an important factor, is, as you mentioned earlier, is of course Japan, because Japan put actually regulation in place uh, after the 2017 bull market. And Japan was also uh, very strong in adopting Bitcoin as a payment system. You could pay actually in Bitcoin in like 200,000 shops in Japan. So already like in, in 2017, of course, it didn't really, uh, it's, really, it's not really established itself, but, you know, Japan actually set, set the level playing field and also on the regulatory side. So exchanges were required to segregate uh, and to segregate client accounts. Exchanges were required to provide audit accounts. 
exchanges were required to put money in cold or to tokens in cold storage. And this is why, as you correctly said, uh, some of these FTX uh, you know, uh, users, they hardly have lost any money in Japan because the regulator has just ring-fenced ring -fenced the exchanges. And I think this is something uh, that, that other countries and other, other regulators can really learn from. Absolutely. I feel that if you see a country that has been able to successfully put regulations in place that are actually not regressive, right? Because at the moment, even the US has been looking at regulations, but then trying to just say, okay, Cardano, Solana, Polygon, all of these currencies are securities, right? Just making blanket statements and they're going beyond three currencies. But the idea with SEC always is to go behind a couple of big fish, try to get a precedent set, and then that precedence will apply to so many other altcoins that are there. And I also love the fact that you spoke about coins other than Bitcoin, right? So folks who are listening in, again, we are listening to the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi, 1550 AM. I am Sonia Huja, the founder and CEO of Orbis 86. With me in the studio, I have Marcus, and Marcus is the head of research and strategy at Metric Spot. So Marcus, uh, you were talking about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, folks who are listening in, you might often hear the term altcoins, and altcoins are actually referring to any coin that is not a Bitcoin. And obviously, the altcoin market, uh, one of the names that stands out from the rest is Ethereum, right? And I don't think people really look at Ethereum so much as an altcoin now because it has been a constant uh, since it launched. In fact, one of the things I tell people to do is just go and look at the top 10 cryptocurrencies like five or six years back. Out of those top 10 cryptocurrencies, if you look at the top 10 cryptocurrencies now, you will only recognize maybe a couple of names, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, if we just you know were to travel back five to six years now. And even the Litecoin, um, Momentum is obviously much slower. Many people who are listening in to the show might not even know what Litecoin is. So yes, these markets, as uh, as Marcus was sharing, it is a cyclical market. And then you know people who are investing in it, look at it, are trying to break it down, trying to find patterns. Before we move ahead, Marcus, I want to ask you, what kind of a market are we in right now? Is it a bullish market or a bearish market? Well, I think it's a it's a bullish market, right? We had, of course, a strong rally, but but it might not be a bull market, right? Because I would define, you know, normally I think in traditional finance, a bull market is defined as long as the or as soon as the S and P rises by by twenty percent from the low, and it's a bear market as soon as it drops twenty percent from the high. And in crypto, I think, you know, because we have a lot of uh, moments, a lot of months, a lot of quarters, when actually Bitcoin rises by 20%, so we would probably have like a hundred bull market. And of course, you cannot analyze them. Some of them are really driven by, you know, by just some flows. So so you need like a, a longer and a stronger story. And I think this is what I was really trying to identify with the book is really like, okay, what are the real bull markets? And the bull markets in crypto are not really just like up 20%, they're really up a few hundred percent, right? So for example, the bull market in 2013, it was a rally of like 5,400%. So it was like, you know, like a, like a monster rally. And there were like, you know, various factors that really drove this, you know, on the one side, of course, we had the European debt crisis. 
So Cyprus was bailing in depositors. So it's a little bit similar to what we heard with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, March this year. But we had uh, this already like happening in, in Cyprus, and it was a, a big factor of of adoption. You know, other issues was of course in 2013 that China uh, was a big uh, was a big um, supporter of Bitcoin and opened it up. Um, you know, and, and various factors. So it's really these these four bull markets that I've just mentioned, 2011, 13, and 17, and 21, that were really like the big drivers uh, for, for the crypto market. And um, and I look at it right now, we are, of course, in a pattern where we had the, the tailwind last year from the Fed hiking interest rates. And since November, December last year, we actually are in a, in, a, in a bullish pattern, but it's not really a bull market. And there, there are two factors. I think they're the big drivers right now. So number one is, of course, the, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. has sort of like stopped hiking interest rates. The market has anticipated this. You know, I would argue they probably can pause here and have paused for the remainder of the year. And I think this is setting off, you know, some liquidity uh, that is really finding its way into into Bitcoin. But the other interesting aspect, you know, people talk about the halving cycle, which happens every four years. So the miners get less rewards for the for the so-called Bitcoin puzzle that they mine and then get these rewards in terms of Bitcoin uh, as, as rewards basically paid out. Uh, but the analysis I've actually done is, you know, the, the mining event or the, the halving event 15 to 16 months before the event, Bitcoin tends to bottom. And we just, of course, we don't have too many data points because it's relatively new. It's just like, let's say like a, you know, a decade of history, but this was kind of like setting the kind of like the, the low, the estimated low for November, December last year. And Bitcoin was like at 17,000 and we wrote a report about it. And of course we, you know, made this also like public. So people like uh, aware of it. And it was covered of course in, in, you know, in many, many of the, the major crypto news outlets, but that was kind of like our kind of like our, I guess, call it our our kickstart, our you know rocket launch, where we said, you know what, uh, historically, November, December, 15, 16 months before the halving, which is expected, kind of like March, April, May next year. So it moves a little bit because of the transaction uh, counts that is important to determine. But this is when we started to write a report about it, and we look at a lot of those data points. And I can name you many, many more for this year that are mysteriously really worked uh, most of them. And this is kind of like how we how we approach the market as well. Thank you. You know, a lot of people, uh, thanks for talking about Bitcoin's halving cycles, right? Many people aren't aware about how that functions, what is happening. I do want to ask you that uh, obviously we are in sort of a bullish market right now. Bitcoin, um, again, is back up above 30,000. It has been struggling to maintain that 30,000 floor though for a little bit. It creeps over 30,000, then it tends to drop back down. So we'll see you know, how, um, how long it can hold the 30,000 floor. And if from there we can see a rally, I think you know there would be more bullish uh, sentiment entering the market in general. That being said though, when we are talking about uh, the momentum of the crypto market, do you feel that the momentum of the crypto market is mainly driven by just Bitcoin? And in presenting that view, maybe you can also talk about the total market capitalization, the total market cap of the crypto industry, and what percentage of that is uh, Bitcoin's market cap? 
yeah, you know, good point. I mean, Bitcoin itself is around 58% right now of the crypto market. And of course, this has this has been rising la from, from last year from a low of like 40% or even, you know, in the mid 30s. So Bitcoin has become actually, of course, at the beginning, it was just Bitcoin and then more altcoins came, other coins came. Uh, but it has really, you know, seen a, a big revival where we where we really rallied uh, from from mid 30s to now 58 percent. And you know, the the total value of the crypto market is around 1.3 trillion. At the peak, we were around 3 trillion. Uh, so we have, you know, dropped let's say like 50 percent, a bit over 50 percent. But it's really Bitcoin's outperformance. And I would argue that uh, besides the first or maybe the second bull market. But certainly the third and the fourth bull market, it was, yes, Bitcoin went up, but it was not the main driver. It was not the main story, right? Of course, 2021, we had like different stories of the yield farming. We also have had the NFT craze. Uh, so these are like projects and protocols that really went up multiple times and was really like the headline grabbing. It was really maybe Bitcoin was for the institutions the easiest way to get in. And that's why I would argue that, you know, we are not really in a in a real bull market. We are in a bullish market, but we're not in a real bull market because it's not really clear what is really the next driver. I think we can, of course, speculate what might be the next driver, um, but I think it's a little bit uh, slow progressing here. Uh, but nevertheless, I think, you know, and as you said previously, um, you know, you can make money in every kind of market if it's a bull bear range market. It's really like understanding where we are and really just playing the odds. And I would also agree that, you know, we might see a little sell off here. And it is because sentiment and we have constructed our own sentiment index. It's really, you know, exuberant. And we have looked at this, of course, historically, you know, the last time it was exuberant, uh, you know, we were, like I said, like at 20, 25,000 in, in Bitcoin prices. And then we, we, we dropped to 20,000 and now we have, uh, rallied you know to like you know kind of like thirty thousand, and i think we have a little consolidation like a couple of days consolidation but i think then we can make you know the next leg higher because i think there's also some interesting stats why bitcoin actually can do you know can perform really well this year all right well actually that was the next thing that i was going to ask you that with the bitcoin halving coming up in 2024 the last halving happened in 2020 right and the next halving is about to happen in 2024 so people are really watching the market because as you said many people conceive that the crypto market generally turns bullish when the halving event happens but even just besides that typically in crypto, we have seen a four to six week cycle, right? And like you said, you know, we don't have a lot of data, but uh, anywhere between a maybe not four to six, even like, you know, three to six years cycle where the prices change, we go from bull to a bear market and vice versa. Um, I know no one can predict what would be the next driver for the next bullish market, mm -hmm. but based on all the research and analysis you do, I would love to hear some of your speculations. When do you think, we might look at the next bull market. And folks, again, if you're listening to the Silicon Dreams here on Radio Zindagi, these conversations are opinions. They are not meant to be financial advice for anyone to go and invest in crypto. But these are just conversations that you all can have insights into. And whenever, no matter you know whatever kind of uh, money you're trading, whether it is your fiat money, whether it is cryptocurrencies, whether it's any any other form of uh, money that you want to trade, you should always understand what you're getting into. 
right? So you have to do that research yourself. Even if you have uh, consultants, like if you are a big family office, you probably have managers managing all of this for you. But no matter who is managing your assets, you need to have some basic understanding of where exactly your money is being put into, right? And especially if you are just a simple retail investor and you manage all of your assets, that due diligence that you have to do, whether it is also in betting on a company in the stock market, right? That due diligence just doubles, triples, or even 5Xs, right? Because you need to really understand where are you putting your money into? That's one of the things, and you know, maybe Marcus, with you evaluating both sides of the market, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But normally, we are in a position right now where most of the people, I don't think I would be wrong if I said even 99% of the people were really into crypto because they are trading crypto. And when Bitcoin started, the white paper was around creating a currency that was not tied to sovereign entities so that everybody could get a more level playing field. And you did not have a few people controlling the entire circulation of currency and just democratizing access to currency in a way. Right. However, I wouldn't be wrong. I feel like if I said 99% of the people are looking at cryptocurrency as not a currency, but as a form of investment, right? And they're trying to see if they can quickly make 5x, 10x, 100x from that investment. So with that sentiment in um in mind, well, we'll we'll touch upon it. Like, you know, what are your thoughts on? Bitcoin or any of these currencies as a decentralized currency versus an investment. We'll talk about that. But before we touch upon that topic, I would love to ask you, what do you, what are you speculating? When do you think will the next bull cycle perhaps be around? And what do you think, and looking at all the indicators, right? What do you think are some of the key uh, drivers here, right? That might actually result in the next bull run. Yeah, of course, you know, I'm looking a lot of, you know, on-chain data, you know, every morning when I get up, I have a model running, let's say 5,000 data points, what's happening in the crypto market, really, you know, from 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 everything where we think money is going, you know, price action volumes, you know, all of these things to really just understand really what what's happening, um, you know, where are people negative, you know, and it's, again, it's like, it's, it's a lot of uh, data, it's a lot of data focused, of course, I don't look at every single point, you know, I have a system to to sort it all out for me and to just tell me what's what's the most important factors. Um, you know, some people saying it might be, you know, uh, real world assets. So the tokenization of like real estate, for example, you know, other people talk about, you know, it might be NFTs coming back, you know, for example, the, the vaccine, the, the vaccine record, if you would have this as an NFT and you travel from one country to another, it would have been like, it could have been like universally accepted. You know, immigration officer could have just like checked like the blockchain, you know, with some like really cheap blockchain uh, if, if your record is there, if it's, you know, so I think, you know, this can also then lead to, for example, driver's license and, and other other important documents, uh, IDs, you know, college degrees, uh, everything really on the blockchain and really, you know, easily accessible for people um, and so on. Um, I think, you know, there, there, are, there are various forms. And I think we, we, I, I would argue we don't know it yet, right? There are around like 420 million people 
who hold uh, cryptocurrencies in the world. So, so the interest is definitely there from people. And I think the regulator has, you know, is realizing this as well, that they have to act. I think institutional investors also are aware that they have to, to act and prepare because there is this really like demand from a lot of people. And when we look at, you know, history, of course, those bull markets, they came within like two to kind of like four years. Um, so of course we had a bull market in, in 21, so we could have one in 23, but I would argue it's difficult to see what are really the themes and drivers. Um, maybe there will be a bull market next year. I think right now it's a little bit kind of the odds that we were playing, right? Of course, we know some other stuff that's happening. You know, one interesting, you know, odd or, you know, a number or probability I would have indicated that 15 to 16 months before the next halving is usually the major structural low for Bitcoin. Um, then, for example, and a lot of people are familiar with this, for the stock market, there's something called the January effect. So every time the S&P, the stock market is up in January, it usually carries over into the rest of the year because it sets the sentiment. And in, in five out of the six years when Bitcoin was up in January, Bitcoin actually rallied for the continuous uh, for the remaining of the year from, from February until December. And the last two times this happened, actually Bitcoin doubled. And of course, the previous years, it even went up more. But if this is the case, then Bitcoin was, for example, on February 1st, Bitcoin was at 22,000. And this would imply that 44,000, 45,000, and this is like a price target we came we came up with during, uh, during you know, in one of our reports. But the other aspect is, of course, that uh, BlackRock has announced that they're gonna, uh, you know, come up with an ETF, and the chances are apparently quite high um, for them that they can launch this this ETF, this Bitcoin BT ETF. Um, and this reminds me a little bit, and I wrote about it also in the book in uh, in 2017. Where we had the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is you know the largest futures exchange for stock futures and other futures, um, when they came up with with uh, with a Bitcoin future in December 2017, and of course the the launch was sort of like the peak of their bull market, but nevertheless we had like a strong rally into the launch, and I think maybe we're seeing something similar now where people buying ahead of the launch of the BlackRock ETF because it, they have just applied for it. It might take at a minimum 45 days until it's approved by the SEC. And then there might be some, you know, some other delay to set it up internally. They're already running this strategy from like last year for like their private, private clients. So I think there is an argument, um, you know, that they can bring forward to the SEC that operationally they're all sound. They have tested this, but nevertheless, it might still be a couple of months or maybe a quarter or two or three away, but maybe the market runs into this event and really rallies strongly because we have seen this in 2017 as well. So folks, if you haven't heard about BlackRock, um, you can obviously go and Google them, but uh, BlackRock, they actually have a very good history of ETFs as Marcus was pointing out. Uh, one of the, so first of all, BlackRock right now, I think they have about, 1.3 trillion but yes you know north of a trillion dollars guys a trillion dollars in assets under management so blackrock isn't just some other firm uh, you know that is that has been around for just like a couple of 
days now, right? They have been here for a few years, decades. They have northwards of a trillion dollars in assets under management. And the reason why a lot of people are very bullish about the Bitcoin ETF going through is because uh, the track record of uh, ETFs recommended, suggested, launched by BlackRock being approved. Their track record is pretty spectacular. They have applied for over 500 ETFs, and I don't remember the exact number, but it's over 500. And out of those 500 plus applications, only one application was ever denied by SEC. So people are really looking at this as a more positive signal, right? Uh, thinking that, hey, it would, again, make the whole cryptocurrency thing more legitimate, um, also help with um, regulations, with the positive sentiment, just bring more people into crypto. Talking about onboarding into the world of decentralized finance or the world of Web3, I want to ask you, Marcus, do you think we will get into a future? I know you spoke about Japan trying to accept uh, Bitcoin at over 200 shops. We also saw El Salvador do that, like literally for a lot of people might not know this, but Bitcoin is actually one of El Salvador's uh, primary currency. It's like their national currency. So they tried to do that. They tried to create systems that you know people could pay with bitcoin but uh, we haven't really seen any successful implementation of cryptocurrency being integrated into our daily lives where you can go and use it as a currency to pay your workers right to pay your maid let's say to go to a grocery shop and buy groceries to pay for your um tolls and tickets we haven't really seen that adoption of a currency but the white paper was central all around creating that decentralized currency so in your view marcus do you think this will change and if yes how long you think it might be before cryptocurrency maybe it's not bitcoin but you know maybe some other currencies they become a form of trading and the reason why i said that personally that this is just my opinion obviously the amount of research I do or it is very negligent right compared to the amount of hours you're spending researching so again as a as a person who has been in the web3 space for a couple of years now I feel like bitcoin has achieved that status of digital gold and we all have gold but we no longer go and pay in gold coins, right? People always save on to gold because its value is appreciating. And they look at gold as a hedge against inflation. Similarly, for a long time, Bitcoin was also argued to be a hedge against inflation because unlike regular currencies, which are inflationary in nature, Bitcoin is deflationary. That being said, what are your thoughts? Do you think we'll ever get to a point where cryptocurrencies become mainstream? A mainstream currency, I would I should say. Yeah, I mean, look, we have we have many different currencies in the world, right? Some successful, some less successful. Um, maybe, you know, technology just takes takes a little bit longer. I mean, there are like 420 million people, as I was saying earlier, uh, who hold cryptocurrencies. Um, so I think you can argue that a lot of people actually, you know, hold this currency because, you know, how many people are holding, you know, British pound, for example, right? Is it, I don't know, is it a hundred million? So it might be already one of these currencies that has been, you know, being adopted already, but maybe 
there needs to be some some upgrade because even like the Bitcoin version of 2008, it has gone through some various upgrades and it might be upgraded from, you know, from time to time as well. And a lot of people are not not aware of some of those upgrades. You know, again, I, I wrote about it a little bit in, in the book as well, uh, because it's just to help people like understand, because yes, there, you know, there can only be uh, produced like 21 million Bitcoins, but of course, the usage and some of the underlying code that can be like altered a little bit uh, and, and changed and uh, and really make it a little bit more user friendly, right? So the question is, but the question came actually up a few years ago, is Bitcoin going to be a store of value or it's going to be more a transactional uh, currency? And of course there have been, you know, various proposals and then there is a committee to vote on it. And, you know, some of the miners can vote on it because they have a whole, you know, they have a lot of power in, in deciding in deciding where Bitcoin is going. And that's why we have seen some forks, right? We have some forks of, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, for example, um, and we have seen other forks, um, you know, Bitcoin uh, as, as V as well, um, and so on. I think, uh, you know, it's really, I think to be, to be optimistic on Bitcoin is a little bit, in my view, to be optimistic on humanity, because I think humanity is a lot about technological innovation. And I think there are so many people uh, working on some upgrades, you know, so many people working in, in Web3, so many, you know, universities are really teaching teaching the subject now. Uh, people are interested in blockchain. I think there is this enormous interest in it. And, you know, any event I go, you know, be it like a private event, be it like an event, you know, like a school event, for example, uh, you know, if people or parents, you know, know that I, I do something in, in crypto, everybody suddenly wants to talk about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, I guess if, if I would be a lawyer, people maybe want to talk about, you know, some some uh, cases that, that they maybe have been like personally involved with. But I think crypto, everybody has an interest. And I think everybody is curious. Everybody wants to learn. A lot of people are a little bit afraid to learn. And I think, you know, nobody wants to pick up a book and like, you know, what is blockchain and go through sort of some hard numbers. But I think that's where I realized that I think the best way for people to learn is just learn about the industry, how it started, how it evolved, and and maybe then kind of like understand where it might be going. And I think the 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 really the, the key point I think to understand is that there that there are like really like hundreds of millions of people now involved in crypto, and a lot of those people they just don't want to go back. They don't you know they they think it's it's fascinating. Uh, you know we're using a lot more technology in our lives, so. Uh, the, the only constant is really that, you know, money has been, you know, stayed more or less uh, the same for, you know, hundreds of years almost. It now. is ripe for disruption, right? Don't you feel that economics, yeah. the world economics is actually ripe for disruption now? Yeah. Well, Marcus, it was lovely talking to you. Before we conclude our episode for today, I would love for you to spend a couple of minutes talking about your new book, where can people find this book? The book, guys, is titled Crypto Titans. I'm going to let Marcus go and talk a little bit about his book. What can the audiences who are listening to the Silicon Dreams here expect to find in the book? And where can they go and get a copy of this book? Yeah, thanks, Anya. Um, so the book, book, you know, Crypto Titans, How Trillions Were Made and Billions Were Lost in the Cryptocurrency Market. So it just came out you know, last month, um, you know, it's a very well-researched book. It has more than 330 references. It's, it's actually 360 pages. Uh, so it's almost like, you know, one reference per page almost. And it really starts from, 
the crypto industry, how it started, who are the players, uh, who are the companies, you know, what, what were the drivers of the bull markets, why we went down. And yes, regulation has come before. Uh, and I think, you know, it's actually, it turns out like a really good reference book because as I was saying earlier, you know, we're talking about the BlackRock ETF being a big driver now. Well, you can easily look at the book and then you, you, you know, you, 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 you see the, the CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange listing of the Bitcoin future as a big driver. You know, you can look when, when any news comes out. And of course, it has the whole saga of FTX uh, in it. You know, how did these people lose so much money? How did they steal so much money? Uh, the, you know, I mean, again, the, the book is really up to date also because it just a came just out. But a lot of those events of the trial that's coming up with Sam Bankman-Fried that's coming up in October. So everything that has been like revealed over the last few weeks, it's actually all in the book. Also about Binance, you know, why is Binance important? Why Binance grew so quickly? What was the, the number one trigger that really made Binance from a 10% uh, market share exchange to a 25% market share exchange? And then there was one event that happened overnight very quickly and that really put Binance on the spot. And I think the book really tries to identify a lot of those events that turned out to be like big turning points. And I think this is uh, very important just for people to understand. And, you know, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can probably guess or get it in, in, in your local bookstore. Amazon is, of course, the easiest thing these days right now. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's available in, in Kindle, in hardcase or in paperback. Well, I was going to ask a question as to, you know, what was that event that happened that skyrocketed Binance? But you know what? I'm just going to let people go and buy the book and then figure it out because I'm pretty sure a lot of the listeners would be curious too. Okay, what was it that happened? So guys, go and take a look at the book. And again, Marcus, if you don't follow him, go and look him up on, uh, on LinkedIn. Marcus, would you like to share your details? Where can people give you a follow on social? Yeah, so on socials, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So it's really, um, you know, Marcus Thielen, and I'm sure you can leave something in the show notes, but T-H-I-E-L-E-N is the last name. Um, you can find me there. Um, on Twitter, I'm on DeFi on Target. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. And that's really, you know, where I'm most, most active. But it's really like on LinkedIn. Yeah, I think that's the best way to get in touch. All right, so folks, you can look for Marcus Thielen on LinkedIn. Again, it's M-E-R-K-U-S if you're looking for Marcus. Normally, people might use a C. It's M-E-R-K-U-S. Marcus Thielen, T-H-I-E-L-E-N. Go and look him up. Uh, you will obviously benefit a lot from reading all the analysis that he posts on a very regular basis. I have been personally enjoying that. It's a lot of great learning points. Obviously, that knowledge is freely accessible, which makes it that much more valuable because you're not paying any costs to access the really detailed breakdowns and stuff that he shares. He summarizes it really nicely. So, you know, I'm always looking forward to that newsletter of yours too, Marcus. And with that, folks, uh, we are coming to a close of our episode today. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today on the segment of the Silicon Dreams and everybody listening in, this is your RG Sonia signing off until next time. And again, if you're in the world of crypto, you're in the world of Web3. If you're trying to get into the world of Web3, be safe. We are still in uncharted territories. And remember one thing, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. So try to go and Google this phrase, research it a little bit. 
And I would say at this point, I'm still going to tell people, enter at your own risk. Even though I've been in the crypto space and I'm bullish on it, yet when folks come in, we want to make sure that you're not just coming in because of an emotional high, but you come in after doing some well-founded research. And that is the reason why, you know, I'm so glad to have Marcus, who is an amazing analyst on both sides of finance, centralized and DeFi, join us on the show today. All right, guys. So this is Sonia signing off. Take care. Stay safe.